this week on the Back Table Podcast. I've been very careful to work on well prepped outside of my normal business hours because I'm a full time practicing urologist, and that creates challenges. I'm not a morning person, but I, you know, I've been waking up at four thirty five in the morning to yeah. to get a couple hours of work done, and then staying up much later than I probably should. And so it's it's not easy. The one right. thing I will say is that, and I, I think other people who have started ventures like this can probably attest, if you truly are loving it, it doesn't feel like work. It it actually feels like any spare moment that you have, you're you're psyched to be able to to dive in. And the hours pass and you just you wish I wish I didn't have to sleep, which is the I know, right? Crazy thing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast. Today, we have a very special episode on the Innovation Show. We're going to be discussing patient preparation. And with us, we have a urologist and physician entrepreneur, Dr. David Keynes. If anyone missed it, check out David's episode number 42 on the Urology Show on mental constructs to avoid complications with Aditya Bagrodia. That was a great listen. You know, I'm, I'm an interventionalist. My wife uh, is an ENT. We both listened to it. Great episode, David. Um, appreciate having you back on. Welcome to the Innovation Show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I'm really excited about this topic, David. You and I talked ahead of time on the phone about Well Prepped. We'll plug it at the end as well, but wellprepped.com in case anybody wants to check it out while they're listening. But it's like genius, right? It's like a light, but you're like, why does this not exist already? And I'll let you tell the story, the origin story about where it started. But first, for those who aren't familiar with you, who who are not, you know, didn't listen to the urology episode on mental constructs, can you tell our audience about, you know, where you've been and, uh, you know, kind of your train, your your background, your training, and where you are now? Yeah, sure. So I'll start now and work backwards. I'm a, I'm a urologist in the Boston area, and my practice focuses fairly significantly on urologic oncology. I do a lot of robotic surgery. I did my undergrad at Yale. I went to medical school at Cornell, and then I did my residency at at Leahy Hospital here in the Boston suburbs. And then I did a fellowship at Cleveland Clinic, and then I came back on staff. I I was originally born in South Africa. That's where uh, my family's from, and a lot of my family is still there. And we immigrated to Canada when I was when I was very young, and then to New York. So I've I've mostly been New York, Massachusetts for my whole life, and. Um, I have uh, five boys, which is wow. always an interesting topic of conversation. Yeah. My house is uh, five boys and a dog, I should say. <laughs> Gotta if have I a ever dog started, with five boys. If I ever started a podcast, I, I would call it Five Boys and a Dog. Yeah, <laughs> yeah for sure. <laughs> um, um, that's, so that's great. My, that's my story. Yeah, five boys. Oof, I've got two kids and they're a handful, man. I mean, I don't know how you do it. Um, we concentrate on two at a time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And I'm sure the the two oldest are are co-parenting as well, probably. I would imagine. Well, you know, occasion they have their moments. Yeah, they have their yeah. moments. Yeah. And just real quick, because it's an interesting background going from South Africa to Canada to the U.S. Do you have triple citizenship, having had that you know journey through those three countries? You know, I I probably could. I let the citizenship from South Africa and Canada lapse, uh, but. Yeah. I I'm sure by by birthright and I and previous citizenship I could uh, th- there have been various political events that have actually forced yes. me to consider that reignited that plan. yeah <laughs> <laughs> right totally I agree and and so 
South Africa is always someplace I've always wanted to go. I was gonna, I really wanted to go there for the World Cup. That was what, like six years ago. And uh, did you get a chance to go down there for that? No, I, I, no. I, embarrassingly, I haven't been back in in more than a decade. Okay, that's what was, my yeah. next question was: How often do you get to get back there? But uh, the thing that I always think about is the cage diving, right, with the great white sharks. Right. That's, that's I, I, my wife um, used to dive a lot, and we always thought, man, that would be an amazing trip to get down there and check that out. Yeah, and um, going on safari. I mean, it's a beautiful yeah. country. I, when I get over the idea of taking five kids on an airplane out that far, <laughs> then, then I'll go back. Yeah, that's yeah, <laughs> that and that's why you haven't been there in ten years. That's why I haven't <laughs> been back. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump into it. Um, I want to talk about well prepped and where you came up with the idea. When you told me about it, it's it's super interesting because it's something that we all, and I told you my personal story, having had a, a vein clinic where I was saying the same thing over and over again. And that, that's what your website st says, stop repeating yourself over and over. But tell me right. about what sparked the idea for you and let's go from there. Yeah. So we can, we can always see things a little bit clearer in retrospect. I, th this was not like I bum my head light bulb moment. It, it didn't, it didn't occur that way. And listening to prior episodes of this podcast, it, it seems like that's a recurring theme. These ideas seldom come in a, in a single flash, but you know, I, I was, I would say primed to, to look for problems. Um, so, so that was one aspect. When I first started out as a doctor, I had a very influential mentor who had brought a few devices to market. And that's what I thought that I was going to do. I was, I was looking for a, a device, you know, surgical something that I could invent. And yeah. that never happened for me. That inspiration never happened. But I was looking for problems. And so it came to me in pieces. I, I would say the first piece is that I personally was burnt out around 2015, 2016. I felt a, a feeling of disconnect from my practice that was a little bit frightening. I remember vividly, I was in an exam room discussing prostate cancer with a 68-year-old engineer. We were having a great conversation and I, I started explaining Gleason scoring as I had hundreds, maybe thousands of times before. And I reached the end of that spiel and I didn't, I didn't remember giving it. I was like, it's like driving to work and, you know, you, you suddenly you're there and you don't right, remember. remember. Yeah, and it's it's really not a good feeling to be in that situation. Yeah, and to feel like you're going through the motion. So th that was one piece that was happening to me. And around that time, I I made a small incremental move. I took the NCCN patient guide PDF. I put it on my Google Drive. I made a link to it, and I went over to Bitly. You know that link shortener, and I yeah. made a short link. I gave it to my secretary, and I said, "Hey, listen." If anyone's seeing me for prostate cancer, could you email them this patient guide to read beforehand? And that started to happen and, and the visits changed. They got a little bit better. The patient said, thank you for sending me that information beforehand. And our, our conversation skipped over the, the spiels, so to speak. And we started to delve into some more interesting conversations. And I, and I thought, God, this is great. And I did the same thing for kidney cancer. I did the same thing for ureteroscopy for kidney stones. And I look back at how many clicks that ureteroscopy video got. And it's been only two in a lifetime. So <laughs> I, didn't get, I didn't get everything right the first time. But I recorded a video of myself explaining robotic prostatectomy, which is the most common procedure I, I did. And my secretary started to get a little bit annoyed at, you know, I have to send them this PDF and this video 
it became a little onerous, but the vi- mm-hmm. the visits were a lot better, better for me, yeah. better for the patient. So that was the second piece. And then a couple more things happened before the idea came. One is we there was this wellness initiative in our hospital where they had an epic expert come to every doctor and spend an hour and help us with our dot phrases and our templates and our order sets and our speed buttons. And it was great. I mean, it was like a practical, tangible experience. But I was thinking around that time, you know, what, how can we get the patients involved? Like the doctors are spending so much time in the EMR and the patients are sitting at home before their procedure. It, it doesn't have to be urology before their IR procedure, or whatever. And they're not doing anything. Yeah. And then I had, I did a nephrectomy on a lady and, uh, she was, I rounded on her after surgery and she was holding a piece of paper, which was her Foley catheter instruction sheet, which had been photocopied a thousand times to the point where the photo of the catheter was like a black box. And she, she showed it to me and she was like, how do I, how am I supposed to read this piece of paper? And I looked down the, on, the, on her bed and she had an iPhone 12 Max, this 83 year old woman. And, um, I remember thinking like, there's something wrong here. Like there's technology on her bed and she's holding this horrible piece of paper from 1987. Yeah. And then if there ever was a light bulb moment around the same time, this concept of a link in bio, you know, link, I know, you know, back table urology has a link tree. Yeah. Okay. So that started to proliferate. And if there was a light bulb moment, I, I saw that and I thought, my God, doctors need something like this. So for people who aren't familiar with Linktree, it's these simple pages with a stack of buttons that lets you put links to whatever you want. Right. And I, I sort of took that and, and ran with it. I made a prototype and I invited some urology friends to create these mini web pages where they could put resources for the top conditions that they treat. Could be videos, could be podcasts, could be PDF handouts, whatever they wanted. And the early users of this prototype were very enthusiastic about it to the point where a few of them reprinted their business cards with a QR code to their little prototype page. And I thought this was initially an idea just for me to to scratch my own itch. I, I right. didn't plan on taking it anywhere else, but it snowballed from there. That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, that inefficiency that you're talking, I mean, that pain, that's the pain point, right? Is not just for the doc, because like you said, you know, Epic is starting to educate docs on being more efficient. They they see this whole, um, you know, we're screaming, hey, we need, you know, we're burning out. We need less clicks. We need less buttons. We need more, we, we need more efficient workflows. And Epic has responded for the physicians to help us in our day to day. But what can we do to help our patients as well as us. And it sounds like that was the main pain point that you were kind of trying to attack here, right? Yeah, First exactly. for your practice. And then it sounds like you're like, well, this has wide application. That's exactly right. I mean, what what I think is the pain point, which you've articulated nicely, to put it a different way is, I think it's it's important to remove anything from the point of care that feels repetitive yeah. and uh, foundational whether it be a field like urology or GI or IR, when we have patient interactions, I think th- there's an underlying thing that, that brought each of us to want to be a physician, and that's having some kind of really present contact and, and a 
connection with the the human being that's in front of us. And when you when you go into this automaton mode of I'm going to give my spiel about nephrostomy tubes, it it doesn't feel that way. Right. And and um, as we become more and more subspecialized, right? You did an extra fellowship. I did an extra fellowship. Pretty much everybody I know is fellowship trained for the most part. You know, we we find ourselves doing the same procedures over and over again, having the same conversations over and over again. And um, I, I told you, when you first told me the idea, I told you about the story of Sal Khan with Khan Academy. And that, you know, if anybody uh, hasn't heard his story, he tells it very nicely on um, how I built this, the the podcast. And um, the story about him being, you know, starting, he was just tutoring his cousins in uh, whatever, middle school math. And he's he's from a big Indian family, so he's got a lot of cousins. And they were, you know, everybody's asking him to teach him the same stuff. And he got kind of tired doing it over and over again. And he, you know, somebody said, hey, let's create, you should create a video and put it on YouTube. And that's how Khan Academy started. And this is, reminds me of that. You know, it's a, it's, I think it's a direct parallel. It's like, why are we doing this over and over and over again when there's the, t- the tech, like you said, with, with your 82-year-old patient, the technology exists where we can harness the technology and make it far more efficient. And, and it sounds like uh, you, you had your sort of first user, user case scenario, which was yourself, and, and it was successful, and then you were able to help some colleagues out. And so where did it go from there? Did you have any co-founders when you said, oh, this is, an, this is a company? Uh, where, how did you, where'd you go from there? Yeah, so I, I didn't have any co-founders. Once I realized that it wasn't just something for me to help my own practice efficiency, that this, there might be other doctors out there like me who might enjoy this tweak to their workflow. Unfortunately, I have no uh, coding ex- experience. I wish I, I, wish I knew how <laughs> right. to code, but I don't. I actually briefly considered learning. Uh, there's this whole movement called no code. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Yes. But uh, yeah. yes. So there, there's this, you know, there's many companies out there now, but one of them is called Bubble. Mm-hmm. And Bubble is an ecosystem where you can visually create apps, web apps or app store apps. And there's still code happening in the background, but it's been abstracted from the visual interface. Even that was a, a, a learning curve. And yeah. I thought, you know, that's not the best use of my time. So I, I vetted probably close to 10 developers and or development agencies from all over the world, d- domestically, internationally, and um, ultimately settled on uh, a team in Boise, Idaho, a company called Ventive, which has ended up being fantastic. Part of the reason why I chose that team is because they, they're not just developing the app. They, it, they aim to be sort of like co-founders, like, you know, you're, you're contracting with us, but we're, we're part of the team and yeah. that, that has come to fruition. So that, that was the next step, you know, yeah. and, and uh, that's where I went with it initially. Okay. How did you fund this? I mean, you know, apps and all this stuff is expensive, right? Uh, did you just bootstrap it from your own pocket? Hold on one second. I was rendering a video. I guess it just finished. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> do, what do you use? Uh, I mean, that's a good segue. What do you use to, to create your own videos? You know, I found an online cloud-based video editing app called Kepwing, K-A-P-W-I-N-G. Uh-huh. Okay. And 
for for the pros out there listening, it is not Adobe Pro or whatever. Pro whatever, but yeah. it, it has very good capability. And and the issue that I have whenever I am doing native video editing on my computer, you know, you have to make sure you have all the files. The files take up a ton of space. Yeah, you can only work on it on one computer. Here, you upload the files. You can work on it whatever computer you have access to, and it in some you know, unique scenarios, it can make it a little glitchy. Yeah. But for, for 99% of videos, it works out. So it sounds like it's web-based. It's all cloud-based. That's awesome. And and the interface, interface looks like a desktop based editing software, but it's all in the cloud. Well, David, that's a great tip. I'm glad that that uh, just happened because Kieran and I talk about this all the time. You know, we're looking at creating some more kind of video content in addition to our you know, primary audio content. And what are we going to use? Uh, you know, it's, it's, iMovie is a little bit too rudimentary, right? You know, it's fun to create little family videos on it, but uh, you know, we, you need something a little bit more advanced than that. Whereas what, every time I've tried Adobe Pro or any of these other, uh, I'm probably saying it wrong, but any of the, the more advanced ones that are, you know, cinematographers are using, it's too much. Like the learning curve, yeah. it's too steep. There's too many bells and whistles. And so this sounds like maybe a nice, uh, it's user-friendly, it sounds like. It's very user-friendly. And yeah. and uh, it, one of the things I love about it is it's a startup company. And so they're yeah. incredibly responsive to feedback. Their help team responds right away. And the other thing is you can do collaborative video editing. So more than one person on the team can be oh, editing the same great. project. I, I, and you can create templates if most of your videos are the same, but you're inserting other content in the middle. Yeah. I I think it's great because as you as you say the professional ones are a little bit too advanced. Yeah, this is sort of in the middle, and I I, I love the fact that it's in the cloud. And it's Capwing K E P W I no K A K A P Capwing Capwing. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. Kieran, make note. We'll explore that later. But that's great. So yeah, it's kind of a segue into uh, let's talk a little bit about content creation, right? Since we're on this topic. Sure. And then we'll talk about funding in a little bit. But so tell us a little bit about, I guess, how well prep works. So let's say I'm a doc and I want to start creating videos, my own videos for patient preparation. You know, let's say I want, you know, I let's the, the vein example. Let's say I do a lot of, you know, greater saphenous vein ablations and I want to give a talk about that procedure and I want to record it. Where do you, where, where do I go? Like where, you know, I go to wellprep.com then where's the process take me? All right. So let, let me, uh, let me give a bird's eye view. First, I'll talk to you about what it looks like in urology right now. Cause yeah. that's the most, it, it's built out the most right now. And then I can talk about IR. So what we've done is we've created bundles of patient educational content for the top 50 conditions that urologists see. Imagine you could, uh, I'm, I'm going to give a real world abstract example. Imagine you could pack a box that you're going to mail to your patient. And in that box, you throw a couple videos, your handouts, a link to a podcast, a support group link, a link to a newspaper article in the New York Times. And you pack up that box and that box is going to get sent to every patient that sees you for that condition. And so Right now in urology, if somebody signs up for WellPrepped, they pick conditions during onboarding, similarly to when you sign up for Spotify and it says, what kind of music do you like? And you click through blues, funk, pop music, and it populates your uh, your feed. 
in urology, you, you do a similar thing with conditions and these condition pages pre-populate with curated content that's open source from all over the web. Wow. And from there, you can add and subtract and customize it however you want. You can add your own handouts, you can add your own videos and things like that. So if somebody wants to create a video, right now that doesn't, that capability doesn't exist inside of WellPrepped. You would have to create the video, upload it to YouTube, and then all you need to do is drop the link into your WellPrepped dashboard on that page and it updates your page instantly. Okay. With a video carousel. So we're in the process of replicating that kind of thing in, in every specialty. So the content creation would be on me and then WellPrepped would basically, like you said, it's packaging up this bundle for a patient f for their preoperative you know, uh, education, I guess. Is that exactly. So, okay. so l let's talk about uh, IR. So first thing that pops into my head, obviously, is prostate artery embolization. Yeah. Funny, funny that yeah. that should pop into my head. Uh, <laughs> we won't tell the urologist. So let's say we have a bundle uh, of sort of standard information that comes from subspecialty societies who have already created great content. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that exists for yeah. PAE. And some docs are going to want to create their own contact content and others won't. Others will want to just take videos that other docs have right. created, which is totally fine. But what I've discovered is if you can consider WellPrep to be a delivery mechanism for this content, once doctors are given this, they tend to start recording videos in the, in the subsequent two weeks mm. after they onboard. And this was a hypothesis that I had that is like, it, it's very gratifying that it's coming to fruition. I thought that there were doctors out there who would have recorded videos, but it was too abstract. Like, I'm going to put this on YouTube and maybe somebody will watch it. Right. No. Now you've got a, a well-prepped page for PAE or G-tube insertion or angiography or needle biopsy. And you're the one that is handing out that link to all your patients. And so you know people are going to have eyeballs on your content. Yeah. Now people are taking their phones and recording videos. Yeah. So how people do that has been variable so far, but it can be as low budget and easy as propping your phone up in front of you on, a, on the desk, hitting record, and giving that your spiel that you've already given hundreds of times, yeah. just recording it once. Yeah. Or people have made simple PowerPoint presentations and started a Zoom meeting with just them in it and hitting record. And you've got a, a PowerPoint presentation with a little video of you in the corner. Yeah. And that's their content. So people are making this content in 10 minutes, as long as it takes for them to make their spiel. Right. Putting it on YouTube and slapping it on their well prep page and they're off and running. And then can they... Um opt into include like are you also creating a general library of this content so that people can choose to use that same let, let's say I, I create one for PAE and I say I submit it I, I want this to be part of my bundle and then do you say oh would you like to make this available to the rest of your, the IR community so that they can use it as well yeah it's amazing that you're saying that so we're on the day of this recording we're as you know, this is still early days, but we are actually creating that experience right now of a uh, library or a discovery section where you can browse content. So my vision for this is crowdfunding patient education. And so 
you know, and it, it's kind of exciting because I think in general, patient education has been relegated to like dusty file cabinets and stacks of brochures and, and it hasn't changed much for yeah. as long as I've been, since I've been a medical student and patient education is sort of having its moment in the spotlight now because people are realizing it can do double duty. You know, it's great for the patients. They deserve it. They're looking for it. And it's great for the docs because they can outsource some of these burdens of repetitive explanations to yeah. their, to technology. Yeah. And it's also great that it's coming for the patient's viewpoints coming from a trusted source, right? The doc themselves sent you to well-prepped for either their video or one of their colleagues' videos versus a lot of patients, when I talk to them in, you know, pre-op, they already went, they went to Google, right? And they, who God knows what they watched. And it could have been really bad quality. It could have been, could have been something from Mayo Clinic. It could have been something from Clean Clinic. Obviously good sources, but you have no control over what content they're consuming. Not that you want to control that. They'll probably still go to Google, but if you can provide them a concise, succinct, you know, resource that answers all the uh, answers, most of their questions before they even come to you, then, you know, that's, that's a huge, there's a huge value to not only your time, their time, but the healthcare, the whole healthcare system. Right. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the exciting things from my perspective, you know, we, we haven't officially like made a big launch announcement per se, but the, the word of mouth from, from this has been significant. And I think it's because it, it's hitting a nerve where doctors are, I think, tired, or they're telling me at least, tired of like waiting for the marketing team to help, the web team to help. Right. The, and, and now, now you, you, you've got something which is predominantly self-service, which yeah. is very easy to use. And there's a sense of relief, like, oh, yeah, let me, can I try this? Let me, let me get going. I don't need to ask permission from right. anyone. I don't need help. I'll just do it myself. Like, you know, we all have handouts. You know, if you've got G2 post-care instructions, yeah. it's probably something that hasn't really been updated in a while. And maybe it had to go through committee to get approved or whatever. And But if you've got your own page, you just type a Microsoft Word document, save it as a PDF and throw it on there. And it, you know that they every patient's going to get it. Yeah. yeah. On their phone too. It's funny, David, you say that because you're, the hypothesis is not that different from our hypothesis at Backtable because docs, you're, you're right. Docs want to create this content, whether it be for their patients or for their peers, they just don't have a, a delivery, uh, vehicle and B an audience, right? So yes. that's, those are their main roadblocks. And they're like, you know what? I don't have time to you know, figure out YouTube and how it works. And I don't have time to, uh, build an audience. So I'm just not going to do it. But, exactly. you know, for you, it's like, no, here's your vehicle, here's your audience and we'll take care of the rest. You just got to worry about your content creation. And it's kind of the same for us. It's like, Hey, we, you know, you want to make a podcast? Come on. Well, you know, happy to have you. Right. We have it all streamlined for you. Bring on your own guest and we have the audience for you. And so it's kind of, it's kind of parallel. I was thinking about that this morning. Yeah, no, I think you make a good point. And in this case, the audience is all your patients, all your future patients. Yes, right. And and uh, and that's a, a little bit different. I think uh, the, the doctors who've been most comfortable recording videos online have large audiences, but this is, this is now shifting and saying, 
every doctor, just pick up your phone, your right. audiences, your patients. Yeah. You don't need to have a social media, you know, profile or any of that. No, it's, no, no. You know, but uh, so I'm curious to know though, I mean, not, you know, it seems like everything kind of clicked as you went, but everybody knows the startups, they're, they're not always smooth sailing. Was there anyone in the beginning that shot down your idea? We don't have to name names, but was there any uh, adversity that you faced when you were trying to get this launched? Um, anything that like kind of felt like resistance and and then what made you push forward through that if if it yeah, happened? Yeah, absolutely. So so going back to when, I, you're right, it's not a straight trajectory. The, this is an absolute roller coaster. There are days when, yeah. I, when, I, for <laughs> when I thought like this is, this is a, even I thought at some points, this is a terrible idea. What am I doing? But um, when I first started reaching out to my circle of colleagues with the prototype, like, hey, can you try this out? Uh, not everybody reacted strongly to it, you know, and, and it's not for everyone. But at that point, I was unsure if it was a, a good idea. And a few people said, you know, this is, I don't get it. Like, this is just a website. Yeah. And the response from there was either I could do this on my own or my web team could do it, or doctors are not going to not gonna want this. It's just a website. And my, my response to that, at least internally, was that this idea was not leaving me alone. I've had a lot of bad ideas over the years, and this idea was, it, it was just very intrusive. It wasn't leaving me alone. And I can do web design myself. And I tried to recapitulate this idea on my own and it just never looked right. It was never yeah. user-friendly. So so that objection I, I sort of knew was probably not not a legitimate criticism. And I, w I had enough strong reactions from enough colleagues to know that I, I changed the way I looked at it. This doesn't have to be, and really any good idea doesn't have to be for everyone. Like, is this workflow right. going to work for every doctor? No. Right. But the hypothesis had to be, there's enough doctors who will see the value that the ones who don't get it don't need to. Yeah. I mean, that, like, basically what you just kind of said, I'm just, to kind of sum it up, and this this happened because, you know, Backtable started out as something completely different and just evolved into what it is today. And you just have to talk to as many people as possible about the idea and and what you know what the pain point is what the the value is and then experiment right and test your hypothesis and and like you said it's not for everybody hey there's a lot of people i've talked to of all different age demographics that podcasting just it's not their thing they don't listen to them you could forward them as many links as you want they're not going to listen to it and um and and you just got to move on and don't you know, if you, like you said, if, if it's inside you and you wake up every morning thinking about it, there's something there and you just got to right. pursue it. Right. 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 I mean, just to pick up on a couple of things that you said, I, I've been reading a lot of books as, as most entrepreneurs do trying to consume as much new knowledge as possible. I can't remember where I came across this analogy, but trying to figure out if a startup idea is a good idea is sort of like picking a spouse or a partner. Like, how do yeah. you know? How do you right. know? I mean, no one can tell you. And in life, you make these big decisions where y you you just have to go with your, your gut, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it's very similar. It totally is. And, and the same thing goes with like co-founders. You're basically, 
Mary, I know you don't have a co-founder, but you know, you're going to, you're going to find, you're going to be bringing people on as you grow. And they're basically, it's like a family. Like you're basically bringing on people that you're going to be essentially married to as you grow this company, because you want them there long-term, just like you want a wife for the long-term and you want in-laws for the long-term. Like it's, it's got to work for better or worse through the ups and downs. You're going to be in it together. And, um, it's not like any other job I've ever had. You know, it's not like medicine where it's feels somewhat stable, you know, obviously medicine has its own challenges, but with a startup, it's, there's so many things. And, and the other thing is, you know, learning as you go, you really need mentors and people who have experience to help you through that. Right. Because there would be times where you're, you're on that downside of the roller coaster and it's stressful and you're like, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And so you got to have somebody who can lift you back up. Or do you have any mentors or advisors that have been helpful in that sense? Absolutely. I'm so grateful that I've, I've assembled a sort of, I guess you could say ad hoc advisory board. It's not an official advisory board, but it's a, a group of people in various walks of life who have been incredibly generous with their previous experience. And it really runs the gamut from the CEO of the development team that that I hired, who has had several successful exits, has been giving me incredible advice, you know, and, and that that hopefully allows you to avoid obvious mistakes that right. other people have a rear view a mirror for that you that you just don't. A few other advisors who are are more in the you know, MBA, CFO roles who have seen multiple startups come to fruition, multiple fail and and have that perspective. Another friend of mine who is in the venture capital world, who also has the breadth of perspective of having been pitched hundreds of software ideas, many of many of which are in health tech who has been steering me, you know, and, and served as a sounding board. And it's been so important for me to even just bounce ideas off of plan out the next few months and, you know, revisit with, with these friends of mine, uh, who have, uh, really helped me crystallize ideas and shape things and avoid pitfalls. Were these people that you already knew uh, before you started Will Prepped, or are they the people that you got introduced to afterwards? It's a mix. Most are people that I already knew. Some, you know, old friends from high school, college, yeah. and that, and then some, some that I've been introduced to along the way. As this, just uh, you know, it takes on a life of its own, as as you can imagine. I think the the heart. If there are listeners out there who have ideas that they're bouncing around. This is a concept that's been repeated over and over again, but it's worth repeating again. Just just getting started and doing some something, yeah, to yeah. step forward. You just you get a cadence and it 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 keeps going. Yeah, it's all about the momentum and inertia, right? You get that momentum yeah. going because that's the hardest part is just getting started, and then you know facing those first challenges, getting over those first challenges. Those are the ones that are gonna cut you at your knees if you don't um, if you don't push through. So. I think that's solid advice. And I, the, the reason why I ask if you already knew them, because I think that's one of the big challenges is, is feeling like you're all alone. You're talking to your friends and family, nobody gets it. And you're like, ah, you know, I got, it's, there's something here. And, you know, how do you find that person who can help you 
kind of hold your hand, get you to the next step, to the next level. And so it sounds like you have that. Yeah. I'll tell you though, for people who don't have obvious contacts already, there are other, you know, in the software realm, there are, there are podcasts out there. I mean, you can dive deep and find communities in virtually any arena that you're looking for. Podcasts lead to, lead you to Twitter communities. People are very generous with their, with their thoughts and advice on Twitter. I've found a lot of uh, receptive people uh, in that realm as well. People who I didn't know who've been also incredibly generous with their, with their ideas. And so you don't, you don't have to have people already. I think this is sort of one of the hallmarks of entrepreneurs is that they, they want to pay it forward. Yeah. I agree with that. And, and like, uh, LinkedIn, I'm always messaging people on LinkedIn and most times people respond, you know, it's, it's kind of surprising, but as long as you print your, present yourself in a genuine way and you're not trying to waste somebody's time, I think, um, what I learned over the years was if you're going to reach out to somebody, have like a, a specific question or agenda, because nothing annoys people more than like getting them on the phone and like, you're kind of fumbling, like you don't have like a clear purpose to the discussion. And so I think that that's, that's the only thing It's like, if you're going to reach out to somebody, have a plan to what, what information are you trying to get from them? You know? Right. And the other thing that I'm learning, uh, you know, as I'm going, you know, people, people always say this is doing something like this is like building the plane in midair while you're jumping off a cliff. But, um, a lot of the forks in the road that you encounter, whether to bootstrap or raise, yeah. for example, there is no right answer. You right. have to have a reasonable hypothesis and make a decision. Yeah. I think both have their pluses and minuses. You know, we bootstrapped and then we raised internally from, you know, our own physician partners. And that was good because we had our own autonomy to do what we want wanted. Whereas raising externally, yes, you can get a nice flush of capital to to do stuff with, but then you're you kind of you know you, you got to answer to somebody, uh, and, and and it kind of puts right. a lot more pressure on the business and on yourself. And uh, so yeah, that, that was actually my next question. Let's get into funding. How did you decide on that? So so far, it's been self funded, and as you may or may not know, developer time is incredibly expensive. You know, it is probably, you know, in a health tech slash software startup, the most significant expense. Yeah. And I did that because I want, you know, I wanted to, if I got to the point of being able to raise, I wanted to de-risk the idea as much as possible before going to someone else and saying, do you want to invest in this concept? I wanted it to be developed to fruition enough to show that there's demand and yeah. um, people want this. So you're going to self-fund until you get to a size in which you think, and basically the idea is proven to then maybe present to a VC firm or private equity, something like that. Yeah. I think I'm probably going to not go, the, it, when I raise a round, which I do plan to do, I, I, I'm leaning more towards the friends and family raise rather than VC. I would rather... My current feeling is that VC funding probably adds a whole additional layer of pressure and metrics uh, and growth targets that would potentially yeah, yeah, be unwanted. Yes, yeah. 
that that is the concern. And, and look, you have a community of physicians who are, you know, most physicians are looking to invest in peers and and especially, you know, things that have, especially something like this with high value. So I think that you would probably be pretty successful in, you know, a friends and family raise, I would imagine. Yeah. I mean, the, the early, the, there's some early strong signals that, that that's probably the case. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about what, what is the business model? And uh, can you tell us is, yeah, will it be subscription? Where will, yeah. where will the costs be come from? So the business model is subscription-based. Doctors will pay uh, a monthly price per user, per user per month. There've been scenarios where groups of doctors, you know, a department puts their, all their faculty on well-prepped and, and then, it, but it's still a similar, similar model subscription-based. You know, once an idea like this gets to scale, it opens up other opportunities for for revenue. Right now, I'm, I'm mostly focused on trying to spread as much value as I can for early access users because yeah. they're also, we're also iterating a lot and learning from the first few hundred users. I mean, the what we're learning is just like incredible. Uh, because, you know, you have hypotheses and it turns out that doesn't register with the user or things that you hadn't thought of are really important to the user. Yeah. And so for the first few hundred, we're not focusing right now on revenue as much as just get getting it out there. Yeah. And testing it and, and testing reiterating. it and iterating it. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And, you know, it reminds me of we had uh, the Osmosis guys on Shiv Gaglani and they they were recently acquired by Elsevier, but they were telling me that, you know, they started out with the, you know, you know Osmosis is a medical education company. It's more focused on med students, just like an alternative way to, to learn, you know, medicine for the med students. Mm-hmm. And it started out as a per user basis, but then they started realizing like there's a lot more kind of value and it actually made more sense to sell straight to institutions, you know. Um, and I could see something like this, especially, I mean, obviously solo practitioners out there, you'd have a, you, you know, pay per user kind of model, but also, I mean, you look at some, you know, big institution like Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, it makes sense for them to just buy this for their whole ecosystem. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I certainly, everything is on the table and I have had a similar line of thought and, and there were a lot of objections that I expected to hear by now that I haven't. So for okay. example, th- think about if, you know, a hundred doctors in an institution each have their own well-prepped pages and they've, they've chosen the content, they've chosen the videos, they've chosen the links, they've chosen the handouts. I, I could expect an institutional objection like, well, how can we know that they're going to pick resources that are over, you know, that are eighth grade reading level. And how do we know that they're not going to put inappropriate videos on there? And right, I haven't yet heard that objection. I'm waiting for it. Yeah. But I have a feeling that the, the demand for this is going to come from the ground up. Yeah. In other words, again, there's, there's a certain level of discontent right now. Yes. Doc, doctors are sort of like, trust me, I, I know what resources my patients should be looking at. Yeah. No one needs to vet it except for me. Yeah. So we'll see uh, as this plays out, uh, are, are large institutions going to throw up old objections about patient educational information or are they, they going to realize that this is, uh, this is a, a new way forward? 
Well, you know, I could see part of the problem being, from, and we, you know, you hear this from large societies and um, and large institutions is they kind of want to they want to own it themselves, right? They already spent right. a lot of time and money and energy on SEO for their own purposes, and why would they, uh, you know, oh, we can just create this on our own for our own docs. Well, we all know that a lot of times that kind of doesn't fit the bill and it ends up falling yeah. short. So you end up with more disgruntled physicians. Well, let me just pick up on that for a second because I want to I want to clarify one thing. Docs can put their own content on, but they, they are also sharing those subspecialty society resources. Ah. And, and so far, I mean, I can tell you because this has been explored the most in urology, the Urology Care Foundation is a subset of the American Urological Association, and they've created a treasure trove of incredible videos and PDF handouts and things. And so far, they've been thrilled that if Well Prepped gets more eyeballs on the content that they paid to create, they they love it. So there's a lot yeah. of synergy, actually. Yeah, and, no, and, that's great. Yeah. Well, do they? So I guess my next question is you eventually will be charging for this. They're giving this content for free. Do you see any kind of conflict down the line when you're making money for the subscription and they're saying, whoa, 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 you know, this is our free stuff and you're making money off of us? Just a little devil's advocate there. Just a... Yeah, no, I think uh, that's something that I've considered. Uh, but the thing is, if people decide that they want to pay for a well well prep subscription, what they're really paying for is is a delivery yes. mechanism. Yeah, and um, this is a scenario where everybody wins because yeah. uh, if there's a subspecialty society that creates content, they win with more eyeballs. Yeah, and and they generally have other sources of revenue that improve when they have more eyeballs. Yeah. So it really is a win-win. I mean, nobody creates content and then doesn't want other people to see it. So again, there's there's a bunch of objections that I expected that uh, haven't haven't occurred. Yeah, I, I love that answer because you're right. You're creating a delivery mechanism above all. I mean, every the, the content is open access otherwise. I mean, same thing with the docs. They can throw their content on YouTube if they want people to see it. Exactly. But exactly. what you're creating is a way for them to actually utilize it uh, directly in patient care and not, you know, just send them a YouTube link, which is a completely different, you know, who's going to do that? And And the way it makes sharing content easy is that for each condition, like let's say you have a page on needle bi CT guided needle biopsy. Yeah, you're sharing you're sharing one URL. Right. Similarly, Linktree, it's just one URL. Yes, versus a whole a list versus of things a whole list gonna, of things. Yeah, and they're going to get exactly. overwhelmed. Um, exactly. Well, that kind of answered my question because I, I wanted to know if you've encountered any red tape or you know re regulations around there that might stunt the growth. But it sounds like you you've already kind of worked through all that the, it, it you haven't really come you haven't really come across anything right yet right not yet okay not yet okay so last this is my last question before you. we're getting close to the hour but i want to talk a little bit about being a startup entrepreneur you know and for you know we kind of touched on this a little bit earlier but um do you you know for those docs out there with a good idea you know and pre, you know they may be fearful of trying something new there's risk obviously and us, you know, physicians were very risk adverse, obviously. Do you have any words of wisdom or inspiration for them in 
how do you, the other question, David, I didn't get to this earlier is how do you balance this with your busy clinical practice? Yeah. All right. So those are great questions. So the first piece of advice, just to reiterate what we mentioned earlier is that you need to be primed to be looking for problems. I spent, as I mentioned, I spent 10, maybe even 15 years looking for surgical device innovation and inspiration never really hit me. Yeah. And then I, and then this software idea popped into my head and wouldn't leave me alone. But, you know, I can't say that at the beginning I had hundred percent conviction that this was going to work because I, I didn't. Yeah. Um, what I, what I remember distinctly thinking is, you know, we all love, or a lot of us love learning new things. And I said to myself, you know, this is a risk. It's a financial risk and it may fail. You know, there's a, there's a high chance that any, anything like this is going to fail, but am I going to enjoy the ride? I knew the answer was going to be yes. Yeah. I'm going to learn a ton. I'm going to love doing this. It's primarily motivated by a desire to help other doctors. Like it started to feel like almost like a mission. I mean, I don't want to be cliched here, but there were enough doctors telling me, thank you for making this. Yeah. Really at an early prototype phase, you hear that and you think, my God, this is so, I can, I can help other docs workflow. This feels very important. Yeah. And so I still feel this way, even if it, it doesn't go anywhere. It is incredibly fun. It feels like, you know, I'm very passionate about it and I enjoy it. And so I knew I was going to enjoy the process and that having it succeed in some kind of metric way was not the most important thing to me. I think you summarized that well. And I, I think I completely agree with you. And honestly, getting to meet others, this whole startup community, um, especially, st- you know, startup physician entrepreneurs has been amazing, right? I mean, and just you know, the camaraderie and the, um, everybody's so generous with their time. Like you said, like most people pay it forward and they're more than happy to, to share, you know, what they're up to, how they're getting funding, there any contacts. I mean, you know, the great thing about the innovation shows, we have all these guys on and like, you know, you talk to them afterwards, you say, Hey, you know, I'm trying to get in touch with so-and-so. Oh, I know him. Let me just, I'll send you a quick email. You know, and, and it, everybody's just very generous and very, um, I don't know, it's just a warm community. And sometimes in medicine, we don't always feel that, or we, we might be get, we might get isolated and, um, we're in our own little world, even when we're part of a larger department and we know things change, politics change. And it's, it's been refreshing to have like this sort of startup community to be, to be a part of. And, and I, I hope you've felt the same. I have absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, to address your other question, which is how do I balance this? It's important. I I don't want to leave that unanswered. Um, I've been very careful to work on well-prepped outside of my normal business hours because I'm a full-time practicing urologist and that creates challenges. I'm not a morning person, but I, you know, I've been waking up at 4.35 in the morning to, to get a couple hours of work done and then staying up much later than I probably should. And so it, it's not easy. The one right. thing I will say is that, and I, I think other people who have started ventures like this can probably attest, if you truly are loving it, it doesn't feel like work. It, it actually feels like any spare moment that you have, you're, you're psyched to be able to, to dive in and the hours pass and you just, you wish, I wish I didn't have to sleep, which is the I know, right? crazy thing. 
but you know, the, the hard part to balance for me is that my brain is constantly turning this idea over in, in all of its different ramifications. And, you know, my family can sometimes notice that I, you know, where's my mind at? Like, am yes. I still thinking about this? You have to turn it off for the sake of your family. Yeah. Um, and that's a part of that I, that I struggle on and off with. Well, you're right. And, and I talk to my wife about this all the time. I mean, you know, uh, we joke and my, my 10 year old sometimes will be like, so dad, what's going on at the back table? Because he can see that I'm just, I'm not there. I'm not, I'm not mentally present. And, um, you do, you have to shut it off. I and mean, we were just talking about this morning, you know, I was like, I, okay, I gotta, we're going to take a break for a couple of days. We're going, we're going to visit my family in Ohio. She's like, you got to shut it off. And, um, you're, you're right. And it, it, the whole time management thing becomes essential when the kids were little and they went to bed early at, you know, eight o'clock, I was staying up late at night because that's, that was right. the quiet time in the house. Now the kids are older. They stay up late. I'm getting up super early because that's when I get the quiet two hours in the morning, you know? Right. And, um, that it's just, you just gotta be flexible and find that time when you can, because you're right. You, you still got to sleep at some point. But there are positive benefits. I think the fact that our kids are seeing someone passionate about an idea, doing yeah. something about it and moving the needle forward. I, I hope at least that, that that rubs off in some way that these lessons that are crucial. I agree with you. I, I like to think that. I, li- I like to think that I got my entrepreneurial spirit from my parents because they started a sportswear business when I was around their age. And I, I remember seeing them hustle. I remember seeing them working on this stuff on the weekends and at nights. And I think that that like planted that seed maybe early on in my brain, you know. I'll tell you, I'll tell you just a 30 second thing. Yeah, my kids yeah. are, my kids are on vacation. My, my wife and kids are on vacation ahead of me. I'm joining them this weekend and they're, they're on Nantucket and they, all the kids walk up and down the beach, collected shells. They brought them home, washed them, painted them. And then painted little little Nantucket designs on them, and then went to the beach the next day, and we're <laughs> they were selling them on the beach. Uh, That's awesome. And, and the the six year old tags along, and if anyone says I don't have any cash on me, he says That's okay. We take Venmo. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And, uh, and so they're selling they're selling literally hundreds of shells on the beach. And, oh, that's and awesome. I think about that, and I think you know maybe maybe this entrepreneurship thing is rubbing off in some way. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Probably more so than being a physician, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's, that's the sad thing. Well, I, I think that's a good place to wrap it up and, uh, unless, uh, you know, let's plug well prep. So, um, David, I guess they go to wellprep.com. Yeah. And the spelling is not necessarily yeah. obvious. It's W E L L P R E P T.com. Or if anyone wants to DM me on Twitter, the DMS are open and it's at Canes, David, C A N E S David. That's how you could uh, explore this if it if it piques your interest. Yeah, I imagine it will. Um, we'll we'll be putting this out both on the urology show. Uh, we might actually end up put it out on all three shows, uh, specialty shows. We've got an OBGYN show launching in in the fall. Um, and I think it'll be helpful for all of our physician listeners, and then also inspiring for our you know the innovators on our on an innovation show. So. David, thank you so much. It's great to connect with you. And, and uh, I think this is awesome. Awesome. Definitely let us let our listeners know when you open up uh, any kind of funding uh, or, or uh, a round that might be open to physician in- investors. I, I'm sure we would have a lot of people that'd be interested. 
Okay, thank you so much. Listen, it's been a, a privilege to be alongside the other the other guests that you've had on this podcast. It's it's really a special thing you have going on. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. And hopefully, we'll be hearing you as uh, uh, more in the near future as uh, bringing on some of your own guests. Fantastic. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at Backtable Innovation on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable Innovation is produced and hosted by Brian Hartley, Aaron Fritz, and Eric Gamaker. Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Anne Dang, social media and PR by Chi Dang, and Dana Parker. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.